Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the worry of new variants continue to grow as Hamilton gets its first confirmed case. Paul Johnson joins us to get the latest on what's happening. The variants have also had the medical officers of health for Toronto and Peel asking Ontario's chief medical officer to extend the region's lockdown and try to prevent that spread. A new survey suggesting that eroding trust in scientists, CEOs, and journalists could threaten Canada's vaccine rollout. And we remember controversial radio personality Rush Limbaugh, who passed away of cancer. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, we're talking about COVID, still about COVID, and about the variances that are going on and, and, well, the concern that's being raised. And there seems to be a debate that's coming up, well, pretty soon and that has to do with the reopening of the rest of the province of ontario most of us of course uh finished the lockdown on tuesday of this week uh the gta and peel region of course are expected to lift the lockdown except that toronto mayor john tory has said he doesn't want to do that so we're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes right now though i want to get an update on what's happening here in the hamilton area uh hamilton is supposed to receive uh, what they call a modest amount of covid 19 vaccines this week as the city prepares for that next phase and what is that phase going to be uh, pleased to welcome to the program Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. Uh, Paul, thanks as always. Great to have you back on the show today. Yeah, great to be with you, Bill. Let me just get a read on it, if I could. I know that you and Dr. Richardson talked about this uh, yesterday, uh, about Dr. Davila's comments about uh, that we should be wary about this this uh, variant that's coming in here and, and the numbers. I, I know that overall numbers for COVID are down, and that's that's a good news story, certainly. But there are an awful lot of health experts waving the red flag here about that. What's your read on this? Uh, so we're all we're all nervous, uh, and if you know when I talk to Dr. Richardson, she believes the next few weeks are are some of the more some of the more anxious weeks we'll have in this entire pandemic. And recognize for her, this has started last January, mm-hmm. so for more than a year, and she's saying these next few weeks are are going to be the most telling. And one of the reasons for that is that. Uh, uh, you know, we know as things open up, there will be more cases. It, it's just that's the law of numbers. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, it appears with these new variants that it, it, the the increase could happen so quickly that it's not going to be like we saw in the fall or we saw at other times. That this could happen in a much more accelerated fashion. And so, while it's wonderful news, the lockdown worked, uh, the stay-at-home order worked, uh, as it did in the spring. Uh, you know, again, these aren't, uh, it, it isn't really rocket science. If we find ways to keep people from uh, interacting and, and, and allowing that uh, ultimate physical distancing as in you just don't see people, period, that uh, we see the cases go down. It happened in the early part of this pandemic and it happened uh, through through the after the holidays and through the month of January and into February. So, you know, those are the things that are happening. Now we're seeing more people uh, having the ability to interact in more ways uh, people will need to have will need to follow those rules as as best as as, as possible, and and in fact, it needs to be almost to 100% compliance because uh, these things just seem to move quickly, and you see that in Mississauga and other places. So our concern mm-hmm. right now is is what is going to happen with cases, and and because we're dealing with uh, these variants of concern, uh, what does that mean for? And we're still in a bit of a crisis piece. And then to the, the comment you made to open this segment. 
uh, we're not getting huge amounts of vaccine in, which is allowing a rollout of yeah, well, let me ask you about that, because, it, you know, we, we talked about that at the macro level. You know, the, the prime minister suggesting, you know, he's, he's been on the phone to Pfizer himself and trying to get this done. Uh, and you talked to us a couple of weeks ago about your rollout program, and, and you were, at that point, pretty pleased with the way it was going. That, but that was with the anticipation that the, 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 the vaccine was going to continue to be supplied here. Where are you right now? Are you, are you concerned about where we are in this area with the vaccine rollout? Uh, it's, it's supply, supply, supply. We all need more supply. It's... it's uh... You know, it's perhaps not a criticism of anybody in particular. It's just the reality that the the only way out of this is large amounts of vaccine flowing into communities and a vaccination program that will uh, immunize uh, large volumes of people. What what we've been really pleased about was our target in order to get it to the super vulnerable, those most at risk of hospitalization and death um, who are in our long-term care facilities and high-risk retirement homes. I mean, that program worked marvelously well, and, and Dr. Richardson and her team did an amazing job of making sure that that everybody who, who uh, wanted it got it. Um, but the reality is, as we open up and do these other things, and, you know, today we're dealing with increased outbreaks in our shelter system. We're still seeing cases uh, floating around in other areas that aren't on, in line for the vaccine for a number of, of weeks, if not months. Uh, the reality is it's a supply issue, and uh, you can have the best plans uh, but in this case, it reminds me a lot, Bill, of PPE in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. We know what its what its value is. We know how it can help us uh, respond to this piece. But when no one had it, 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 you couldn't snap your fingers. No amount of money, no amount of advocacy is going to get something we just don't have. And so Dr. Richardson and her team are just, uh, they're ready. And we as a community will be ready. But it is an absolute supply issue and recognize whatever doses we get, it's really half of that because we, we want to make sure everybody gets the two doses. So in terms of people yet, we're not at a critical mass where we can start to say uh, we're, we can see this curve turning and that combined with reopening of things is why there's a little nervousness around here. So our hope is it goes well, but I will say that uh, we are nervous for these next few weeks. This is a race, isn't it, Paul? I mean, you know, this, these are not, you know, separate issues here. The vaccine rollout and, and the supply for that vaccine and the concern that a number of medical experts and people that are involved in the recovery, such as yourself, uh, with the, uh, the variants in this virus right now. And as you say, the rapidity with which they seem to, to spread in situations like that. And, and not that, not that the shot in the arm is going to be the magic thing that's going to make this go away, but boy, it's a, it's a huge defense mechanism. And uh, I know you and Dr. Richardson and everybody else wish you were a lot further down the road with the vaccine rollout, but there's not a whole lot you can do about this at this stage. You just, you know, whatever comes, you know, in the box is what you can put out. That's about all there is to it. But it's got to be a little troubling. I mean, when you hear people like Dr. DeVille and Dr. Richardson say that uh, the next two or three weeks are going to be critical, uh, you don't want to see this thing get out of hand. We don't. And that's why, you know, I know there's talk about, you know, what are the triggers for the provisions around emergency breaks and things like that. And that's, that's all fine. What is good is that there are those provisions in place. I think everybody is aware uh, that as things open up, because we have to balance so many things, you know, decision-making in this type of a pandemic that's now gone on for, for more than a year is really difficult. So I, I wouldn't suggest for a minute there's a simple solution. There's only, uh, <laughs> so I often say around our emergency operations center, we're trying to find the least damaging of a set of bad decisions. And, um, you know, that's the, the choices that we have right now. And, and, and what we're trying to do is balance that there is a real continued issue in our community around the cases. And the more cases you have, of course, the percentages are that some people will 
will become very sick. Uh, you know, we still have deaths occurring, uh, and not all deaths are in long-term care. So this this myth about mm-hmm. it's only a long-term care issue or retirement home issue is just not true. Uh, so this is a very dangerous virus. It is a virus that, that you do not want to get. And, and so we need to continue to do that work while looking forward to what ultimately will help us get back to fewer and fewer restrictions. And that's a broad immunization strategy. So, you, you know, it's why I say, uh, and I'll repeat it again, it just feels an awful lot like where we were with PPE. Once that started to open up and we were able to access resources and bring in supply, I can tell you I breathe a lot easier, and I know that the whole community and the whole world will breathe a lot easier once the volume of vaccines starts to come. I have no doubt it will, but uh, Bill, as we wait for it, it's just it's it's hard because we yeah. know the value that it brings to it, and we've seen some of those early pieces in terms of having less less of an impact in terms of outbreaks in long-term care that's received it, and, and you, you read the promising work out of Israel, who's vaccinated a lot of folks, and, and its impact on case spread. So you know, we're all waiting for those good news stories to flow, and that will come when we get lots more doses into this community. Certainly hope so. Paul, as always, uh, continued good luck with this. I know you guys have done an outstanding job, you and your teams, and uh, we'll check in again in a couple of days. Appreciate it this today, though. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Yesterday on the program, we talked with uh, Dr. Lisa Barrett. Uh, Dr. Barrett is an infectious disease specialist at Dalhousie University out in Nova Scotia, and uh, she was pretty adamant about her feelings on this and says this is not the time to be opening up. Politics and economics don't belong in outbreak management in a pandemic. And I do recognize public health and mental health needs, but The take-home message is, if you want to stop a highly transmittable and even more transmittable virus from going from person to person, you have to wait to have social gatherings and social public settings with people with their masks off, like bars and restaurants and gyms. That has to wait until your cases are very low or near zero for the regions where the cases are high. That might not be the whole province, but in areas where the cases are still high, the seven-day average is high. That reproductive number that we look at is, a, is near one. You can't open things because your virus will back. This is not rocket science. And in fact, I would say there's no debate around this. It's not the time to open things up. That's uh, the, the opinion from yesterday, of course, and, and she was being influenced by the numbers uh, that uh, Paul Johnson just referred to in Newfoundland, but it's happening in other areas too, and it's happening here in Ontario. And uh, that's why the letter from uh, Dr. Uh, Davila yesterday uh, to the Ontario government, uh, she, of course, is the t- top doc in Toronto, uh, suggesting that this shouldn't be happening. So what's the reaction to the letter, and what's the reaction to uh, how the government responded to it? I want to bring uh, Dave Ordered into the conversation. Dave, of course, is a uh, reporter with Global News 640 in Toronto. Uh, Dave, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us here today. Good morning, Bill. I saw the clip that uh, that we were on on Global National last night uh, with Donna Fries and uh, from uh, Dr. Davila. Uh, it's it's pretty chilling stuff, isn't it? I mean, it was just bang on. She said this is not the time, and she backed it up with uh, I thought some pretty strong arguments. Yeah, you know, it, we really haven't heard Dr. Davila have that kind of use that kind of strong language yet. One of the the quotes that kind of stuck with me was uh, that she said that she was never uh, she's never been as worried about the future as she was today, speaking of yesterday. Uh, and it was, it, to me, it was, it was a little shocking in, in the sense that, you know, you look at, at how uh, this entire pandemic has been. In Toronto, there have been times where there were thousands of, uh, of cases in a week. You know, there were dozens of deaths in a day. And yet yesterday, uh, you know, when we'd had 
the lowest case numbers that we've had in a long time, that's the most worried that she's been. And she backed that up basically by saying that, yes, the numbers appear to be low, but it's the UK variant specifically, or the variant that was first located in, in the UK, that is worrying her the most. And she, she pointed out some of the statistics talking about how 56 cases um, had been confirmed to be uh, of the UK variant, um, but that they had already screened something like 280 cases. So obviously a huge number um, that, that we could be seeing, uh, and that's why she's so concerned. It was interesting, too, the point she brought up. Uh, I, I agree with you. That was probably the most poignant uh, element of, the, of her, her debate and her point yesterday. But the other one was, she says, reopening sends a false message of security. And and when you look at the spikes that, that we've had in southern Ontario, Dave, like in the summertime, for instance, and even in the fall, uh, that, that probably led us to the lo- latest lockdown, there seems to be some validity to that, that when we think things are opening up again, that there's probably, at least in our subconscious, this idea that, hey, maybe the worst is over. Maybe we're, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And she's saying, no, it's not there yet. Yeah, and both Dr. Davila and Toronto Mayor John Tory were talking about that and saying that they want this lockdown to be the last lockdown and that if they open up too soon, uh, then they're going to get caught in this cycle of opening and closing and opening and closing. And they don't really want to do that. Um, never mind the fact that, you know, it's not good for, um, you know, public health measures. It's also terrible for the psyche uh, when mm-hmm. you're when you're constantly going through that. Uh, so it, it was one of those things that I think Dr. Davila, uh, I asked her specifically, uh, you know, is this, you know, difficult to explain to business owners? Uh, and she said that it's really just about making sure we get this done right the first time. Uh, and I know I have watched uh, some of the clips with, with, the, with you guys were questioning uh, Dr. Davila about this. Uh, and, and, of course, the, pr- the premier's response to this was, look, at, we're monitoring the numbers, and if we start to see them go up again, we can just shut things down again. And she she actually even addressed that. She said, uh, I'll paraphrase it because you were listening to it more intently, uh, uh, was uh, it'd be too late. By the time you see those numbers spike, because it's a two-week gap, obviously, between the numbers that are being reported and what's actually happening. And uh, she said, that, you know, this is this is more severe than the, the first two waves, and it could actually be too late if we wait for that. So she she's asking, basically, I guess, and so is Mayor Tory, to, to err on the side of caution here. That's right. Yeah, she she really because of the in the in the letter she's asking for uh, Dr. Williams to wait until March 9th to look at it again. And that was the other part that I, I don't think that got enough um, kind of mention um, is the fact that they're not asking to be reopened on March 9th. Uh, they're asking Dr. Williams to take a look at it again at that point. So it, it's it's a it's a small uh, change in wording, but it's a very important change in wording. Uh, but that 14 days, according to uh, Dr. Davila, it's going to allow um, health officials to kind of see how this variant is doing, how it's spreading, that those kinds of things. Her big concern is that we're opening up in a time when this variant is just kind of starting in the GTA, the greater Toronto yeah. area. Uh, and it, it's, it's not, we don't know enough about its spread or how dangerous it is to allow to reopen. So giving that 14 days uh, is going to give them an opportunity to look at it. Well, and, and as you guys have been reporting, I mean, it's, it, this is not in the abstract here because this is already happening. Uh, it happened in the U.K. where they started their reopening, and all of a sudden that, this, this variant came in there, and, and now they're into lockdown once again. So it, it, we just need to look across the pond here to see just how, how difficult this can be. 
And Bill, she mentioned that actually yesterday. She talked about how this uh, variant uh, in the UK kind of popped up in November and it was it was devastating to the country to the point where they did have to lock down again. Uh, but she said the good news is, is that you can see that the UK is almost on the other side of this now. They're, they're getting to a point where they can see where the, a lockdown can be uh, lifted at some point in the future. They, they can see uh, that their public health measures are actually doing something. And that was the other positive that she said, is that we can see that our own public health measures, so these lockdowns that have been enacted, uh, she says those are doing something as well. Um, and that's obvious when you look at uh, just uh, sheer numbers in terms of uh, daily COVID case counts, as well as people in ICU beds and, you know, unfortunately, deaths. Dave Worded uh, from uh, Global News 640 in Toronto. Dave, great reporting on this. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, topic of my uh, eighth and commentary this morning on CHML was who do you trust uh, when it comes to the pandemic information? And according to a recent survey, we don't trust very many people at all. And it's it's actually deteriorating considerably. A new survey suggesting that uh, eroding trust in scientists and CEOs and journalists is actually threatening Canada's vaccine rollout. Here's Blake Lambert. The survey by communications firm Edelman found that trust in scientists was down six points compared with last year's survey. Trust in academic experts declined 16 points. CEOs fell five points and journalists edged down four points. The survey also found that half of Canadians say business leaders are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false, while 46% say government leaders are doing the same. The survey underscores a growing struggle around trusted information and credible sources. Blake Lambert, The Canadian Press. Okay, so we understand there's always going to be a certain level of skepticism here, but the, the, this is going in the wrong direction in a big way. And, and as, as we mentioned, it's just going to have a problem here because we're looking at people. We need to have the people that are making decisions in this pandemic uh, with some level of credibility. And that seems to be slacking off an awful lot in the last little while, at least in our minds it does anyway. Uh, the folks that did the survey here, Edelman Canada, uh, and uh, Lisa Kimmel's going to join us right now. Lisa is the chair and CEO of Edelman Canada. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could uh, hop on with us here today. Thanks so much for having me. Did these numbers surprise you? Um, well, I would say that the Edelman Trust Barometer is really a snapshot of some of the key indicators around trust in institutions, business, media, government, and NGOs, as well as societal leaders. And the results are certainly not encouraging. And and because you've covered just about everything here, it's not just the the politicians. I mean, we all know that people, you know, have a, a mistrust of politicians. That just seems to go with the game. That's uh, that's that's fine. But in a situation like this, and this is let's face it, that's a crisis situation. We're in a pandemic. It's gone on a lot longer than I'm sure a lot of us thought it was going to. Uh, you'd like to think that we could turn to our leaders and say, okay, show us the way. Uh, you're the experts here. You're the ones that have the, the knowledge. Uh, but we don't trust them. And, and well, the numbers are going down considerably. They, they certainly are. And I think what they say is, is that, um, you know, we're not just living in a pandemic. We're actually experiencing an infodemic as well, because all kinds of leaders aren't meeting the expectations that society has of them today. And so because there is so much misinformation out there, that's feeding the mistrust that people have in leaders today. And so what's going to be required is a full frontal attack across 
all kinds of societal leaders to be consistent in messaging, helping to educate, particularly as it relates to vaccination and why they're safe, why they're effective, um, or else this is going to persist for even longer than we ever anticipated. That, as, as you well know, is an onerous task, isn't it, to try to, to get everybody not necessarily thinking in the right direction, but at least understanding where the credibility is. Because, I mean, if you are skeptical and you don't believe what person A said, whether it's a politician, CEO, or whatever, uh, there are plenty of other options here that substantiate your point of view. You just need to go to another television network, another radio station, uh, you know, pick up another newspaper, whatever the case might be, and say, aha, see, I was right and that guy was wrong. Yeah. Now, one thing that I do want to point out, which is encouraging, is that as people have over the last number of years um, continued to, we've continued to see a decrease in trust in the institutions that we measure. The one that they do trust is my employer. 72% of Canadian respondents trust their employer. That is a privileged position that um, CEOs have with their employees. And so that's actually an opportunity for a CEO to be playing a role and essentially having an expanded mandate from just simply running their business and actually playing a role in helping to educate to clarify misinformation, um, and to really help to lead on the key issues that people are concerned about and are most fearful of. And, and that's encouraging because when I saw the, the the statistics when I first started reading this over, that's the one that jumped out on me. But it's about CEOs. Uh, half yeah. of Canadians say business leaders are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things that they know to be false. That's that's a, a, a pretty big accusation. I was I was stunned as a CEO myself to, um, to 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 think that half of the Canadian population thinks that we are purposely misleading um, them. But but again, I go back to CEOs writ large um, as a group aren't trusted, but my employer CEO is trusted. So again for CEOs, for their own employees and other stakeholders, they actually have an opportunity to continue to build trust by leading, leading with purpose and helping to navigate and to provide clarification to their employees as they're trying to navigate the complexities of the pandemic and beyond. Let me ask you about that, because that's an interesting twist to this, and I, w- I wanted to get your read on this as well. Uh, it's one thing for we, the public, to look at these numbers and say, yeah, we, we're skeptical, all right, and we can get into exactly why that's happening. But when you look at these numbers, though, Lisa, what message does it send to the CEOs and the politicians and the quote-unquote experts? It uh, is a uh, loud and clear message that CEOs aren't, and and societal leaders more broadly, aren't meeting the expectations of Canadians today. And I think it's important to note that the characteristics that made for a successful CEO in the past aren't those that are going to be important in the future, but also today. And so they need to step up. They need to do better. They need to um, lead with the facts. They need to also act with empathy. We are all struggling during the pandemic, trying to balance our personal and professional responsibilities. And so listening to employees, hearing what it is that they're, have, that, that what they're feeling, 
And what is the role that the employer can play in helping to strike that balance between um, delivering against the business needs, but also of employees? There's so much angst going on there right now. And like I say, there, there's so many different information sources, uh, social media, what they call well, media like this as well. Uh, and, and to try to get the message and to try to find out the truth right now. I, I, as I was reading this, I was hearkening back to, to the impeachment debate, and I don't want to get too heavy into the weeds on that. But I remember the comment from uh, from uh, Senator Romney, who was simply saying, you know, because they were talking about how we're going to quell the, in, the unrest, and he said, you can start by telling the truth. And that, that seems to be one of the underlying messages that these numbers indicate from your survey. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in we've been doing this this Edelman Trust Barometer for the last 21 years. And in 2018, given the proliferation of fake news and misinformation, the theme that year was the, the notion of the battle for truth. And in 2021, you know, shift a few co- a couple of years later, we're actually talking about the concept of information bankruptcy that institutions lack so much trust amongst their stakeholders that they essentially need to rebuild. And when you look specifically at the media, all types of media continue to decline year over year in their level of trust. Now, traditional media, still the most trusted in Canada, but a year over year decline of 10 points. Uh, Only 22% of uh, Canadian respondents uh, trust social media. So, you know, I think that traditional media has to continue to, to play its role in terms of informing the public, but there's still a lot of work for traditional media to be doing as well because uh, we're seeing declining uh, numbers of trust in, uh, in traditional media. I'm glad you brought that up about the time frame because you guys at Edelman have been doing this for a long time. Did you get the feeling... Lisa, that the longer this goes on, the less we're going to trust our, our leaders because, you know, the, we, we, we did trust them at the beginning and uh, it's still going. So, you know, they, were they telling us the truth? Do they not know what they're talking about? Do they not have a plan? Uh, we start to question, I guess, when we say, hey, we're not getting the results we wanted. Um, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the other things that we saw in uh, in this year's data is that um, we're seeing a rise in activism within workplaces, oh, yeah. and there are many examples of that. Um, so one of the interesting stats was that 46% of Canadians who are employed said that they're more likely this year today than they were a year ago to speak up and voice their opposition to management around um, decisions that management has made or to actually engage in, in a workplace protest. And so they really feel, and then consumers more broadly are really start. There's a real movement that there is a belief that we can actually change and have the power to change the decisions that corporations are making. So uh, again, that's a really complex um, issue that leaders have to deal with. We talk about our responsibility, and there's a phrase you used in the report that I, I found interesting because it, I think it really kind of captures uh, maybe one of the root problems with the skepticism that we have here, uh, and it's it's what you called information hygiene. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what that means. Yeah, so um, this is the first year that we looked at this, and um, it, it's looking at information hygiene through four dimensions. The first one is um, news engagement. So are you when you engage with news, are you looking at multiple sources? Secondly, 
are you vetting the information that you are receiving to ensure its accuracy? Thirdly, are you ensuring that you're looking outside of your own echo chambers and the type of media that you typically consume through your own feeds? And then lastly, ensuring accuracy and vetting of the information and the fa verifying the facts before you actually amplify or share any news with your social networks. And what we found, which was really concerning, was that only 20% of Canadian respondents actually have good information hygiene. Ouch. So there is, it, it, I mean, it's shocking. Um, what that reinforces is that in a world where we're inundated with information, misinformation, we need to ensure in, uh, on an individual basis that as we're consuming media, are we actually answering those four questions before we start to share that information or believe that point of view that is shared within a particular news item? Well, and we see this all the time, especially on things like social media. You'll see a headline or a news story, and you figure, yeah, that, that, that concurs with how I feel. You share. You don't check for the, yeah. the validity of it. You just you share it, and that's, well, you know, the old Winston Churchill line, that, you know, a lie goes halfway around the world before the truth puts its pants on in the morning. Uh, and that's that's how and these things go. And if only he saw what, what, you know, what's going on today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When he was alive. That, uh, yeah, that that was the 1940s, and here we are talking about you know the information yeah. social highway and, and what's going on yeah. here. But what's interesting about this too is is because you've done the comparison in the study, and you find that those 20 percent, uh, those Canadians that do actually vet this and do go to, to multiple sources, are actually more readily accepting of, of some of the facts because they've done their homework on this stuff. And, and, and to relate it back to the pandemic, they're more likely to believe what the doctors are telling us and what the politicians are telling us. They're more likely to believe that vaccinations are necessary. And, yeah, they'll roll up their sleeves. The ones that sole source a lot of their information, not so much. Correct. So the there is definitely a correlation between your level of information hygiene and your willingness to get vaccinated. So again, call to action for all of us as Canadians around the importance of doing and engaging in proper information hygiene before sharing information. And, you know, the more that we can get people to be thinking about those four dimensions of information hygiene, the more likely we're going to ensure that factual, reliable, credible information is shared as opposed to misinformation. Yeah, it's not. It's not that we're more gullible if we do more research. It's that we can, you know, separate the the, the BS from from the truth in situations exactly. like this. Exactly. Uh, and and there's a health element to this too. I'm going to tie in what you guys have done here with your research uh, to a number of conversations we've had with epidemiologists about the vaccination program that we're trying to get going in this country and well, right around the world, I guess for that matter. Uh, Seventy-three percent of Canadians with that good information hygiene are willing to be vaccinated within the year, uh, and we know that if we want to develop herd immunity here, we have to be up around 75, 80, maybe even higher than that percentage of, of the population to get vaccinated. So the more we do our homework, the more we know, the more we're likely to get vaccinated, and, and the more we're probably going to do something anyway to try to defeat this, this pandemic. Exactly. So we have to get to those herd immunity numbers. And as you point out, you know, initially it was 70 percent. And now, you know, many experts, including Dr. Fauci, are saying it could be up to 85 percent. And so 
because of the fact that in Canada right now, certainly according to um, the Edelman Trust Barometer data, only 66% of Canadians were willing to get vaccinated, that there's much work to be done by leaders across government, um, but also business and NGOs, and then, of course, the role of the media in helping to um, provide factual information around vaccines, why it is that they're safe and effective so that we can get to the required herd, herd immunity numbers. But it's, it's going to require we, the citizens, uh, to, to be dedicated to trying to seek the truth. And Because you know, as you say, uh, you know, the, the goals start to change here. You know, we talked about the level of herd immunity that we were seeking, say, six months ago, and now it's changed. And the skeptic's going to look at that headline and say, see, these guys don't know what they're talking about, and just, boom, click and go off to something else. Uh, the, the person who's got that, that proper information of hygiene is going to say, I wonder why. I'm going to look into why. Where else can I go? What can I get information about that? And you may not agree with it, but at least you're going to get information that's going to validate what the doctors are telling us like that. So, I mean, we, we can't be lazy about this. Exactly. And I think, too, this is a, uh, a situation that is changing by the day, by the month, you know, by the week, by the month. And as new information is gathered, that might change an original position that a scientist or a public health official has had around how we handle the pandemic. And so it's important to acknowledge that when they are communicating, that this is um, a situation that is unfolding in real time, and therefore positions might change as they gather more information. Well, the takeaway here is that we all have work to do. And I don't just mean we, the, the, the consumers of the information that's being given to us by these people, but uh, the people themselves, the leaders, the medical experts, the politicians, and even the CEOs. Uh, I Absolutely. think there's a wake-up call here for all of us, isn't it? That Look, we've got to do a better job here. Certainly is. Uh, interesting, fascinating stuff. Uh, where's the webpage they can go to if they want to get some information about this, Lisa? They can go to edelman.ca, E-D-E-L. M-A-N dot C-A, and the full report can be downloaded there. It's freely available. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting read. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Take Bye. care. Lisa Kimmel, who is the chair and CEO of Edelman Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, controversial radio personality Rush Limbaugh has died of cancer. Jason Nathanson has the details. For over 30 years, he dominated the talk radio landscape. Great to be with you. Rush Limbaugh, the conservative flamethrower, had one of the most popular daily radio programs in the U.S., averaging more than 15 million listeners a week. Syndicated since 1988, his brand of politics spread like wildfire during the Bill Clinton presidential administration, and he often claimed credit for helping President Trump get elected. Limbaugh was diagnosed with lung cancer in January of last year, thanking listeners in an emotional December 23rd broadcast. You're just the best. His last show, February 2nd. After that, his condition worsened. Rush Limbaugh was 70. Jason Nathanson, ABC News. It's uh, to suggest that uh, Rush Limbaugh was a polarizing figure, I guess, would be a massive understatement at this stage. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Rob Goodman. Uh, Professor Goodman, of course, is uh, with the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, good to have you back on the show, uh, Rob. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. I was just looking back on some of the social media comments over the last 24 hours since this was announced. Uh, a couple of phrases I just jotted down here. Unfunctionally conservative, uh, wildly partisan, bombastic, uh, but also racist, misogynist, hate monger, and, and, and some other stuff that we can't say on the radio right now. Uh, to suggest that this was a polarizing figure, I guess, is, is, is maybe the good place to start here. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to put it. I, I think another way to put it is that Rush Limbaugh really was the conservative movement in America for the last 30 years or so. Um, 
to borrow from what someone else said in reaction to his death, uh, I think at the beginning of his career, you could say the conservative movement was, was a political movement with an entertainment wing. And I think by the time of his death, uh, it's an entertainment and media uh, network uh, with a political wing. Um, I think Limbaugh was just absolutely central in bringing um, the conservative media complex, um, demonstrating, demonstrating the, the, the power of it to attract a following and to orient the entire movement around a set of cultural grievances rather than really a political program. So there's just an absolutely straight line for him to Trump. I think you don't have Donald Trump or contemporary conservative politics in the U.S. Uh, without 30 years of Rush Limbaugh uh, being you know, pumped into homes and car radios across America. Well, by extension, do do you not have Fox News without Rush Limbaugh, too? No, I think that's uh, that, that's certainly true. Um, I think uh, people like uh, Ailes and Murdoch, uh, who are instrumental in, in bringing Fox News uh, to Americans, uh, were looking to Rush Limbaugh as a model uh, for what connects with the public and what sells in terms of conservative media. I think he very much established that template. Uh, another thing I want to point out is that I think it's important to think about um, the media landscape as a whole uh, as we reflect uh, on Rush Limbaugh's life and career. Um, I think for me the most important thing is that um, in 1986, uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, um, repeals the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine is the idea that because the airwaves uh, and radio networks and so on are a public good, uh, because they're, they're in some sense uh, a collective property of everyone in the country, um, they have to be managed in the public interest. So the Fairness Doctrine said that uh, when you're broadcasting, uh, you need to be fair, you need to be equitable, you need to be honest, and you need to provide multiple sides of different issues. So when that's repealed in 1986, uh, it gives Rush Limbaugh a, a tremendous opening to uh, reach national syndication and reach an audience with the kind of uh, conspiracy theories and, um, you know, frankly, dishonest broadcasting uh, that formerly hadn't been possible. You know, so I think one way to look at his career and subsequently the uh, success of Fox News and conservative media are um, a small group of people making tremendous profits off of you know the privatization of what used to be a public good. Um, so I think one way to look at his career is the transition from thinking about the airwaves as a public good to be managed in the public interest, uh, transitioning to a private good uh, that's managed in the interest of a few. And I think Limbaugh rode that change from the very beginning uh, throughout a, a very uh, financially and politically successful career. A lot of people I've talked to, and, and not just over the last little while, but over the last number of years, of course, I've, I've tried to drag a, a parallel between Howard Stern and, and Rush Limbaugh. Uh, same approach to broadcasting. Stern, not so much in political, although he's very political these days. Uh, he's he's morphed into something totally different from the way he was 20 years ago, too. But they, basically it is, the mantra seemed to be, the more outrageous you are, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah, yeah I think that's I think that's true. And I think what uh, you know, Limbaugh found as a really talented radio personality over the course of his career was that you didn't really need to have a coherent politics. You didn't really need to convince people. You didn't really need to put together a coalition to change people's lives. Uh, what you needed to do was deliver political entertainment. You know, what, what entertains and what... Uh, keep people coming back. And I think it's a cast of enemies to hate, uh, you know, feminazis, as he called them, mm -hmm. or uh, people of color in the United States, or feminists, or uh, liberals, or uh, gay people. You know, I, I was shocked to hear that uh, he had a segment on his program in the 90s where he would actually uh, play jaunty music and celebrate the death of uh, gay people from AIDS. I mean, so the, the thing is that this, this was shown um, over the course of his career uh, to draw a really uh, fanatical and devoted audience. And he said something that was really interesting 
uh, when he was endorsing Donald Trump in 2016, uh, because Donald Trump, when he was running for president, uh, made a number of important deviations from conservative orthodoxy, uh, the kind that, that Limbaugh would throw people out of the party for. But Limbaugh was full hearted, you know, uh, you know, wholeheartedly for Trump. And, and what he said is that what brings us together as conservatives is this deep um, and he said virulent hatred of liberals and Democrats that Donald Trump embodies and that I embody. And I think what he realized was, was what political scientists call negative partisanship is tremendously powerful for getting people to tune into your program for building a political movement. You don't really have to be for that much. You don't have to deliver meaningful change, but you have to give people something to something to hate. And he was really talented at that. And and those parallels don't just start with 2016, of course, as, as you've articulated. Uh, I mean, it goes long before that. I mean, uh, Limbaugh and his success really emboldened Trump, didn't it? I mean, long before that. I mean, he, Donald Trump's always wanted to mouth off about this, that, and the other thing. And, and they, you know, his uh, niece's book, Mary Trump's book last year, I think was pretty insightful about stuff like that. But, but Limbaugh showed Trump that, you know what, don't worry about what you say, because the more outrageous it is, you're actually appealing to the, the group of people that are going to love you steadfastly no matter what. Yeah, and I think that's the case in the media as well. You don't really have to win over a majority of the media. You have to win a uh, large but devoted following that can still be a minority of the population. So I think the quirk here, and I've mentioned this a couple of times in the past, is that Trump can do the same thing uh, because of the majority-suppressing features that are built into the U.S. system of government. You can uh, govern, you can win a majority in the Electoral College, in the Senate, in the House, without actually winning a majority of votes, which is how Trump... Uh, and Republicans put together um, control of uh, the presidency, the House, and the Senate uh, in 2016, and you know continues to be their playbook. You know, so I, I think in a system in which majorities actually governed, and in which you couldn't really get political power without winning 50 percent plus one of the people, um, someone like Trump uh, wouldn't have been possible. Uh, but because we have those majority suppressing features of our system of government in the U.S. Uh, that means that you can govern like Trump and talk like Limbaugh. That means that you can have a political message and platform that are geared to the interests of uh, you know forty some percent of the population, uh, which can be uh, you know quite more extreme than it would be than if you were trying to win over an actual majority. There's a line of thinking that. I, I, I'm very skeptical about, but I wanted to get your read on it anyway. Uh, some suggesting that he was not as as radical as as he came out on air. Uh, he just understood this was an act. He always called himself an entertainer, uh, and said, you know, I just want to entertain people for three hours. Uh, and and I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that because I've heard the same thing about Donald Trump that no, he's not really a racist or a misogynist. He just he just does that because he wants to get a rise out of people. Uh, I, I get the sense as that career went along that that Limbaugh, however he started out, there, maybe there might have been a little bit of showbiz in it, uh, but he he became that 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 he you know he just he was the personification of that because he understood that the more outrageous he was, he was appealing to those those people that, that do. Uh, have racist tendencies and, and misogynist tendencies and, and that sort of thing. And that, that seemed to be the core of his audience. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he was a talented entertainer, but I think at the same time, my philosophy is just that you are what you do. Uh, and if you make your career um, out of doing what Rush Limbaugh did, it doesn't really matter what's in your heart or what you thought deep down. What matters is your record as a public figure. But the other thing I'll say is that, you know, to the extent that, that Trump and Limbaugh and, and you know people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are part of this tradition in conservative politics today, I think it's important that a lot of their political platform is entertainment. Um, I don't think there are a lot of substantive ideas 
for what we ought to change in American life um, in the conservative movement right now, other than, you know, say, cut corporate taxes a little bit more. And that's different than, say, in the 70s and 80s, when, you know, whether or not you agreed with it, um, the conservative movement had a pretty intellectually coherent uh, and compelling and detailed platform. You know, they don't really have that right now, but what they have are the kind of things that Limbrock provided. They have cultural politics, they have grievances, you know, they have a cast of characters to hate, whether it's uh, anti-PC or anti-wokeism or anti-feminism or anti-Black Lives Matter. Uh, they have a lot of cultural symbols that they're against. They have a lot of ways of mobilizing people around shared enmity you know, of a group of people in the outgroup. But they don't have a lot of coherent offerings for what they would actually change if they were in power. And I think you see that from the way that Trump governed. Um, you know, but Limbaugh really established the template for how you can be tremendously successful, you know, simply on the basis of that negativity. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that is a really successful entertainment act. Uh, and there's a place for political entertainment. But I think the more troubling thing is that this view of politics as entertainment um, has really taken over the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And and we've seen variations on that, too. I mean, well, we all know, well, Stephen Colbert's first show, when he left The Daily Show, uh, was The Colbert Report, which was a satire, basically, on right-wing talk show hosts, the Limbaugh's and the Hannity's and stuff like that, and uh, and very successful. I think he won a couple of Emmys doing that show. But the, and I remember the, a couple of years later, during the Bush administration, he was actually called the MC of the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, and he showed himself as Stephen Colbert. They, they were expecting to see the Colbert Report. That's an act that he did, though. It was one night a week, one hour a day, rather. For, you can't do what Limbaugh did for 30 years and not have some semblance of belief in, in the stuff that you're saying. No, I, I, and, you know, to think that he did that for 30 years and he talked for three hours at a stretch, I, I think, uh, you know, whatever he thought deep down, you know, the point is that, you, as you say, I think you're absolutely correct. You can't keep voicing those same thoughts and opinions and conspiracy theories and, and hatreds uh, three hours a day uh, for you know, 30 years uh, without them becoming a deep part of who you are. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm not so concerned with what was deep down in his heart. I'm concerned with the, the damage that he did. And I think that goes back to uh, the damage that comes uh, from anyone who profits as greatly as he did from privatizing what was once a public good. You know, I think if, if there's anything good that can come out of people reflecting on his legacy and his career right now, um, you know, they have to think about what would it look like for the airwaves and for the media as a whole to be regulated like a public good as they were uh, before he came on the scene. Because I think if you look back at his career, um, it's a tremendously successful career in entertainment. Uh, but I don't think there's any measure by which he made uh, the country or the media or political debate a better place. And I think that's even from a conservative perspective. You know, Despite the fact that he is uh, loved across the length and breadth of the conservative movement in America, uh, I don't think there's very much that he did in his career that contributed to uh, conservative government, conservative ideas, conservative policies. Um, I think he made a lot of money for a lot of people, but I think that's different from advancing a coherent kind of political agenda. Is is the damage to that that psyche, that political psyche, irreparable now? Is it, the, because I mean, even though he is gone, I mean, the the, the that, that's still there. That entity is still there. Fox News, maybe not so much. I mean, they seem to have been. Well, Isles is long gone, but Hannity is still there. Tucker Carlson is still there, and that we're finding out now that there are some offshoots of that. I mean, that that are right along the, uh, the same genre as as a Limbaugh. So that it seems to me as if that genre of, of talk radio and that that adherence to, to these extreme views like this is not going away anytime soon. No, I, I think that's true. I think the genie's out of the bottle in a sense. And I think that 
uh, it's a lot harder to get the genie back in the bottle today than it might have been in 1986 or 1987, uh, you know, simply because there's been such a compelling model of how successful and profitable these kinds of entertainment can be, you know, not just in terms of generating uh, advertising revenue and high salaries for the people that are running them, um, you know, but in the sense of, of, of rallying people um, yeah, for the for the economic program that benefits the kind of people that are funding these stations. And you know, like I mentioned, it comes back to mm-hmm. um, I think a cultural program that gets people on board uh, with lowering taxes for the same kind of people that own these stations and own these means of media production. Uh, but again, the more power they accumulate um, and the longer they're on the scene, I think the harder it becomes to uh, undo their power. So I don't know if anyone has uh, a coherent idea for what it would do or what would, what it would take to change the media landscape uh, in a way to undo some of this damage. Uh, but I think at least what we can do right now is reflect on the kind of damage that's been done. Exactly. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Rob. Thank you so much for the time today. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Have a good uh, rest of your day. You too. Professor Rob Goodman, of course, from the uh, Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.